Welcome to another in-depth exploration of the book of Jeremiah. Written by Imre Tokich, Ph.D., LLD. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 6. Symbolic Acts. Hath not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Every student of the Bible knows that it is filled with symbols, things that represent concepts and ideas other than themselves. The entire earthly sanctuary service, for example, was a symbolic prophecy of the plan of salvation. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths, vast and profound, are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are opened to the understanding. That quotation is from the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 133, by Ellen G. White. Through the symbolism of the earthly sanctuary, or the symbols of prophetic books such as Daniel, chapters 2, 7, 8, and the book of Revelation, and in many other ways, the Lord has used symbols to convey truth. Meanwhile, Jesus himself, with his parables and object lessons, used symbols to explain deep truths. The book of Jeremiah itself is rich with symbolism and imagery. In this exploration, we're going to take a look at a few of these symbols, what they were, what they meant, and what lessons you can learn from them for yourself. Symbols. Scripture is exceedingly rich in symbols. All kinds abound, and in most cases, they represent truths greater than themselves. For example, we have two sacrifices mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. As you listen to the New Living Translation, Try to answer this question. What do Cain and Abel's sacrifices symbolize? Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, New Living Translation. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, 
but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Very early in the Bible, we can see the difference between the attempt to work one's way to heaven in the offering of Cain and the realization that salvation is by grace alone made available to us only through the merits of a crucified Savior, the offering of Abel. We find another example of a symbol used in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Again, we will hear the New Living Translation. The Bronze Snake Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. What was the symbolism of the bronze serpent uplifted on the pole? To be certain, let's compare John chapter 12 and verse 32, which quotes Jesus when he said of his own death, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. The Israelites saved their lives by looking upon the uplifted serpent. That look implied faith. They lived because they believed God's word and trusted in the means provided for their recovery. That quotation is from the book entitled Patriarchs and Prophets, page 431. The author's name is Ellen G. White. All through the Old Testament, the earthly sanctuary service served as the most detailed symbolic representation of the plan of salvation. How much the Israelites understood about the meaning of all the rituals has been an open question for millennia, though no doubt many did grasp the most important of all truths taught there, substitutionary atonement. The idea that in order for their sins to be forgiven, 
a substitute had to die in their stead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, New Living Translation, Paul tells the believers in Corinth, Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. In fact, through the sanctuary service, we have been given symbols not only of the death of Jesus, but also of his high priestly ministry in heaven, the pre-advent judgment, and the final disposition of sin at the end of the age. What other biblical symbols of the plan of salvation can you think of? Which ones especially speak to you about God's saving grace and the hope we can derive from it? Potter's clay. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. From the New Living Translation, what essential truths are taught from the five sets of verses and their symbolism? Text number 1. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. The potter and the clay. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Text number 2, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. Respecting the potter. How foolish can you be? He is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, He didn't make me? Does a jar ever say, The potter who made me is stupid? Text number 3, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Arguing with and blaming the potter. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their Creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop! You're doing it wrong! Does the pot exclaim, 
How clumsy can you be? Text number four. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. The potter is our father. And yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We all are formed by your hand. Text number five. Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. The potter has a right to decide purpose. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? Because of the constant rejection and persecution that he faced, no doubt Jeremiah wanted to give up. Was it worth struggling and fighting for that nation? At times he certainly felt that the answer was no. No question, though, as he watched the potter's hand, he was given an image, a symbol, of how the Lord worked with human clay. Whatever other truths are found in the image of the potter and the clay, it does teach the ultimate sovereignty of God. That is, however hopeless the situation might have seemed from Jeremiah's perspective, the symbolism of the potter and the clay showed him that ultimately, despite the wrong or even willfully wrong decisions that people make, the Lord is in control of the world. He is the absolute source of power and authority, and in the end, he will triumph regardless of appearances now. Centuries after Jeremiah, Paul picks up on this Old Testament image in Romans chapter 9 and continues with it, basically using it to teach the same lesson that it was to teach Jeremiah. In fact, Paul may even be directly referring to Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 6 in Romans 9 verse 21. Let's listen to both verses. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. And Romans chapter 9, verse 21. When a potter makes jars out of clay, Doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? We can rest assured that despite the reality of human free will and free choices and the often calamitous results of abusing that free will, in the end, we can hope in the absolute sovereignty of our loving and self-sacrificing God, whose love is revealed on the cross. 
evil won't triumph. God and his love will. What a hope we have. Listening friend, how can you learn to trust in the lesson of the potter and the clay, regardless of present circumstances? What other Bible texts show you the reality of God's sovereignty? degradation of a nation. Because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Jeremiah chapter 19 verse 4. In this text, we are given a few examples of the evils that had overtaken Judah. Besides forsaking the Lord, offering incense to other gods, and shedding innocent blood, they also estranged this place. The Hebrew verb means to make foreign, to make strange, or to profane. Whether this place was the temple itself or Jerusalem, the text doesn't say. The crucial point, though, is that the nation was to be holy, special to the Lord, something different and distinct from the nations around them. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, tell God's original intentions for his chosen people. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. But that's not what happened. They lost their unique character the distinctiveness that would have made them a witness to the world. They became just like everyone else. What lessons do you learn from their experience? Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 5 They have built also the high places of Baal, to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 10. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering, and do not let your people practice fortune-telling, or use sorcery, or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft. Though the concept of human sacrifice was known in the ancient world, it was anathema to the Lord, 
who forbade the practice to the Israelites. The phrase translated from Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, as, quote, neither came it into my mind, end quote, in the Hebrew reads, it did not rise up on my heart. This was an idiomatic expression showing just how alien and far from God's will such a practice was. If we, sin-hardened, fallen beings, find it abhorrent, imagine what it must have been like to our holy God. Nevertheless, over time, the power of corruption and culture so overwhelmed his people that they had degenerated into this horrific ritual. What a lesson it should be to us all about how easily we can become so blinded by the prevailing culture that we accept or even take part in practices that, were we connected to the Lord and in tune with His Word, we would never countenance, but would instead be horrified by. By contrast, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14 reveals the outcome of being connected to the Lord and His Word. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. The jar. As we heard in the last section, the nation had fallen into deep apostasy. They weren't getting the message. God then used Jeremiah to do a powerful symbolic act that, ideally, would help wake them up to the danger they were facing. Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 1 through 15, detail what Jeremiah was to do and what would be the meaning of this act. Jeremiah's Shattered Jar This is what the Lord said to me, Go and buy a clay jar. Then ask some of the leaders of the people and of the priests to follow you. Go out through the gate of broken pots to the garbage dump in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and give them this message. Say to them, Listen to this message from the Lord, you kings of Judah and citizens of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. I will bring a terrible disaster on this place and the ears of those who hear about it will ring. For Israel has forsaken me, and turned this valley into a place of wickedness, 
The people burn incense to foreign gods, idols never before acknowledged by this generation, by their ancestors, or by the kings of Judah. And they have filled this place with the blood of innocent children. They have built pagan shrines to Baal, and there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. So beware, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when this garbage dump will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For I will upset the careful plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will allow the people to be slaughtered by invading armies, and I will leave their dead bodies as food for the vultures and wild animals. I will reduce Jerusalem to ruins, making it a monument to their stupidity. All who pass by will be astonished and will gasp at the destruction they see there. I will see to it that your enemies lay siege to the city until all the food is gone. Then those trapped inside will eat their own sons and daughters and friends. They will be driven to utter despair. As these men watch you, Jeremiah, smash the jar you brought. Then say to them, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. As this jar lies shattered, so I will shatter the people of Judah and Jerusalem beyond all hope of repair. They will bury the bodies here in Topheth, the garbage dump, until there is no more room for them. This is what I will do to this place and its people, says the Lord. I will cause this city to become defiled like Topheth. Yes, all the houses in Jerusalem, including the palace of Judah's kings, will become like Topheth. All the houses where you burned incense on the rooftops to your star gods and where liquid offerings were poured to your idols. Then Jeremiah returned from Topheth the garbage dump where he had delivered this message. And he stopped in front of the temple of the Lord. He said to the people there, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. I will bring disaster upon this city and its surrounding towns as I promised, because you have stubbornly refused to listen to me. Jeremiah had to go to the potter's house again. This time, though, the Lord wanted to make sure that he brought witnesses with him to see exactly what he was going to do. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, says the witnesses were the elders and priests from Judah. As leaders, they were responsible for what happened in the nation. And so they needed to get the message that Jeremiah was to give to them through the power 
of his symbolic act. The potter's gate, mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 2, New King James Version, where he was to smash the jar, might have been near where the potters worked, and just outside the gate might have been where they would dump their shards of ruined pots. In this way, the symbolism became even more powerful. What good is a smashed clay jar? If the jar were cracked, some use might be found for it, even if not for the original intent of the jar. But Jeremiah wasn't merely to crack it. Instead, he was to break it, essentially rendering it useless. Between the act itself and the words that followed, it's hard to imagine how the people could not have understood the warning. Of course, understanding the warning and acting on it are two different things entirely. What's even more frightening is the apparent finality of the act. Who can repair a smashed jar? Though the Lord gave the nation a hope for the future, yet for the moment, unless they were to turn around, the Judeans were doomed, they and their children. All the places that they had defiled with their abominations and sinful acts would soon be defiled with their corpses. Perhaps the depths of their depravity can be best understood by the depths of the punishment that their depravity brought upon their heads. Think of something ruined, ruined beyond repair. What was it originally made for, and what happened to it that now rendered it useless? What can you do so that this doesn't happen to you? The Linen Belt We will now hear Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. As you listen, answer this question. What was the symbolic act God instructed Jeremiah to do? And what important lesson was it to teach? Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11 say, Jeremiah's Linen Loincloth this is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it on, but do not wash it. So I bought the loincloth as the Lord directed me, and I put it on. Then the Lord gave me another message. Take the linen loincloth you are wearing and go to the Euphrates River. Hide it there in a hole in the rocks. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord had instructed me. A long time afterward, the Lord said to me, Go back to the Euphrates and get the loincloth I told you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug it out of the hole where I had hidden it. But now 
it was rotting and falling apart. The loincloth was good for nothing. Then I received this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. This shows how I will rot away the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. These wicked people refuse to listen to me. They stubbornly follow their own desires and worship other gods. Therefore, they will become like this loincloth, good for nothing. As a loincloth clings to a man's waist, so I created Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were to be my people, my pride, my glory, and honor to my name. But they would not listen to me. This symbolic act has caused some difficulties for interpreters because the river Euphrates, a common interpretation of the Hebrew, but not necessarily the only one, was hundreds of kilometers from Jerusalem. Ezra 7 verse 9 says that Ezra needed four months to travel there in one direction only. In order to understand the message better, God made Jeremiah go back and forth twice. Thus, some scholars have argued that some other geographical location was meant. On the other hand, some argue that the long distance he had to travel helped show him just how far away the children of Israel would be taken. What's more, after returning from such a long trip, Jeremiah could understand the joy of returning after 70 years of captivity. Whatever the case, the belt symbolizes both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, pure and unstained at the time of the call. The man wearing the belt is God himself. This shows, among other things, just how closely tied God himself was to his people. Some commentators have seen significance in the fact that the belt was made of linen, the same material as the priestly garments mentioned in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 4. Speaking of the priest, that verse says, he must put on his linen tunic, and the linen undergarments were worn next to his body. He must tie the linen sash around his waist and put the linen turban on his head. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself in water before he puts them on. After all, Exodus chapter 19 verse 6 reveals that Judah was to be a priestly nation. In order to understand God's prerequisites for being chosen as his priests, let's listen to Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Just as the belt had been ruined, the pride of the nation would be too. As a belt clings to a man's waist, these people had once clung to the Lord and were his source of praise and glory. But they had become tarnished 
and spoiled by contact with the surrounding cultures. Let's compare and contrast two verses. First, we will listen to Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11, and contrast it with Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Two questions to keep in mind. How do these verses together reveal what happened to the nation? And what do these texts say to you? Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 11. As a loincloth clings to a man's waist, so I created Judah and Israel to cling to me, says the Lord. They were to be my people, my pride, my glory, and honor to my name. But they would not listen to me. And Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Look, I now teach you these decrees and regulations just as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. Obey them completely, and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation! For what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I am giving you today? Let's continue exploring. The image of the potter and the clay, especially as seen in Romans chapter 9, brings up the important question of how we seek to understand God's actions. The fact is, of course, we often don't. That shouldn't be surprising, should it? We've heard a few key verses from Romans chapter 9. Let's listen to the entire chapter to hear the context of those key verses. Paul wrote with fervent emotion, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirms it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. 
he gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins, but before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? 
In the same way, even though God has a right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Israel's Unbelief What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. As human beings, we simply are very limited in what we can know about anything, much less about all the ways of God. This point, the limitation of human knowledge, is revealed by what has been called the self-referential problem. Here is the barber of Seville. The barber of Seville shaves everyone who doesn't shave himself. Does the barber of Seville shave himself? If he shaves himself, 
He can't shave himself because he shaves everyone who doesn't shave himself. But if he doesn't shave himself, then he has to shave himself for the same reason. Because he shaves everyone who doesn't shave himself. The answer forms an insolvable paradox that reveals the limits of reason. So if reason gets tangled in itself on something as mundane as whom the barber of Seville shaves, how much more so on something as profound as the nature and extent of God's dealings in the world? What we do have is the cross, which gives us abundant reason to trust in him and his love, even when what happens in his world makes no sense to us at all. To many minds, the origin of sin and the reason for its existence are a source of great perplexity. They see the work of evil, with its terrible results of woe and desolation, and they question how all this can exist under the sovereignty of one who is infinite in wisdom, in power, and in love. Here is a mystery of which they find no explanation, and in their uncertainty and doubt, they are blinded to truths plainly revealed in God's word and essential to salvation. You will find those words in Ellen G. White's book, The Great Controversy, on page 492. Here are five questions to consider. Question 1. What challenges does the idea of God's absolute sovereignty present to you in regard to the question of evil? Question number two. How does the great controversy scenario help you work through the tough questions, at least partially for now? Question number three. What other symbols can you find in the Bible? Question number four. Why would God use symbols? And question number five. What are the advantages of symbols? ambassadorgroup.org Thank you for exploring with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.